You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, I'm Lisa Birnbach, and welcome to my world. Today's conversation is going to be lively and riveting with writer Richard Panic, who explores the phenomenon of gravity. But before I say another word, I have to say something about the mass shootings that plague our country. Guns and violence have never been the smart way to settle a score. Guns beget more guns. The rage and resentment in this country grow with every ugly rally and messed up manifesto. We have become a nation of haters, led by the hater-in-chief who thinks it's funny that he could shoot a stranger dead on Fifth Avenue and be considered an even bigger winner. While we mourn the human losses of the week, let us think about using other means of quelling our bad moods. Maybe next week will be better. Okay, let me state on the record that my mother celebrated her birthday this week. On Monday, the progenitoress, the progenitor of all exhibits that I know, My mother turned 89. Now, she'd be horrified if I spilled the secret, but she hasn't figured out yet that I have a podcast or how to listen to it. So let's not tell her. I asked her how she felt about turning 89, a number no one else in our family has ever, to my knowledge, reached. She said, I never thought I'd look this good. That is my mom in a nutshell. And there's a picture of her from our lunch on my website at lisabernbach.com, and you can decide for yourself how she looks. I think she looks good. And often, she is very funny to be with. There are those other times, but this is her birthday, so I'm all about her. And for my five good things of this week, number one is not just my mother, but all mothers. If I had known how hard it was to raise a family and keep a sense of peace and calm and security about the house, I might have second-guessed my ability to do those things. I would have been way too nervous to do them and would have thought I'd get hysterical too much and burn out, and I would never have been a mother. So my mother made it look easy, and so do so many of the mothers I know. Number two summer dresses. I finally came to the realization this year that when it's really, really, really hot and humid, no one needs a tight waistband to deal with or something to tuck in it. That's uncomfortable. I bought a couple of light skirts, but, you know, you still have to figure out what goes with what besides a white t-shirt. So dresses, they answer the question of top and bottom. Dresses. I'm sorry you guys can't wear them, but they really are the answer for the summer. Number three, the new Oatly ice cream. I swear I am not a spokesperson for this company, nor do I own a share of their company. If they're publicly held, I don't know. I repeat, I don't know the Oatly people, and they don't know me. I'm sure they don't know I exist. But I saw a display of their ice cream at the supermarket and brought home a pint of coffee, Oatly ice cream, or ice cream substitute, whatever. I don't even really like ice cream, to be honest. It's not one of my vices. I'd much rather have salty, buttery stuff. But this thing, this ice cream product was so good. It was so creamy and tasty, and it's not fattening, and it's not dairy-filled. Now, I technically 
quote, bought it for my boyfriend, unquote. But I seem to be the one eating it all the time. So I highly recommend it. Highly, highly recommend it. Number four, a week or so ago, we met with friends for dinner in a restaurant in the East 20s in New York. The day was hot as hell, so I wore a sleeveless dress. The restaurant was cold. I mean, even within moments of checking in, I was shivering, and I said to somebody at the front desk, oh, my gosh, is it is it me or is it really cold? And I was told, no, it's really cold. We'll give you a pashmina. I probably could have walked out with it, really, now that I think about it. But they gave me a black wrap. I don't think it was a real pashmina from a Nepalese goat, but I think it was, you know, a warm scarf. It made all the difference. Plus, of course, since it was black, it went with everything I was wearing, which was black, and problem solved. So restaurants, if you have good air conditioning, which I support, just have a supply of scarves or throws that other people can have. There was a Greek restaurant called Kefi that used to give out blue blankets. So if you sat in the cold area of their restaurant, that was cool too. Number five, look, I don't really bring this up a lot. But number five this week is going to be the official preppy handbook. Now, why would I be thanking a book that I wrote 38 years ago? 1980. It came out in October. And it's been out of print since 1995. But suddenly, it's getting a lot of attention. I'm not exactly sure why. Is it because Celine's new collection is very preppy looking? Is it because Mercury is still in retrograde? I don't know. But yesterday, the chief TV critic of the New York Times, a fellow named James Panawazik, wrote a kind of backhanded appreciation of this elderly book. It's rewarding to have written something with this kind of staying power. So thank you for the acknowledgement. Thank you for the praise. And thank you for listening. Coming up, Richard Panic, author of Trouble with Gravity. My guest this week is Richard Panic, author of The Trouble with Gravity, Solving the Mystery Beneath Our Feet, recently published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. That's a hyphenate. Um, welcome to the program, Richard. Thank, thank you. Glad to be here. You're a nonfiction writer who goes deep into different areas for each of your books. You right. wrote about autism with Temple Grandin. Right. You have, I would say, Catholic lowercase c group of interests, wide and vivid and and extraordinary. And you came up with this idea for a book mm -hmm. when you had a little spill. That's right. I was in a bookstore and I was killing time. And I pulled a book off the shelf and opened it to some random section. It was something I was researching, so it was related in some way. But the section I opened to happened to be on gravity. And after reading a page or two, I realized that we don't really know what gravity is. And I thought this was kind of extraordinary. And and, uh, and I closed the book, and I stood up, and I my foot had been asleep, apparently. And I fell over in the bookstore, and I thought, okay, the universe is sending me a message. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> well, <laughs> and you took, but you took the message. I took the message, and I thought, okay, so what is it? What what is? I mean, if we don't know what it is, then what do we know? 
And that just, you know, I just kind of followed my nose for a few years and saw where the journey took me. When I read your book, I didn't realize that we didn't know what it was. I thought what Richard has done is, and don't kill me, but you've written a book sort of about science for people who don't know that they enjoy science or can read science. Right, right. It's written for lay people. Right. Well, I don't have a background in science myself. Right. Uh, So what I do when I come to a new topic is I just kind of... um, say, okay, I'm going to research this, and then I'm going to write about it, and I'm going to, uh, because I'm coming from an area of ignorance, I figure that if I can explain the uh, the concepts in such a way that I would have understood them before I started on the project, then I'm probably somewhere in the right ballpark. So gravity is not a law of nature. Well, I've, we call it a law. But we yes. call it that, but yeah. I've learned through the book that it's not that. Right. We... Gravity, what we call gravity, is actually an effect. You know, you let go of something, it falls, the moon orbits the earth, the earth orbits the sun, whatever. These are all gravitational effects, but we don't know what actually causes those effects. We call it gravity. I mean, Newton came up with the with the term, basically. Uh-huh. Uh, gravity, gravitation. Um, we So he, that's the word he gave to it, but he himself said... I don't know what this is, and I'm not going to guess what it is. I mean, he tried. He spent his youth trying to figure out what what it is, and uh, when any eventually, he never gave up. But he took a mathematical approach to it and said, "Okay, I will find the math for it, and I won't worry about what it actually is." So he found the math for how the universe works, without saying what is causing the universe to work this way. Okay, that blows my mind. It blows my mind that someone can use math to figure out something that they don't understand and then still not understand the thing they don't understand but know that they got the math correct. Right. And that is, in a nutshell, what what made me science-phobic as a kid because I couldn't do the math. Ah. Or I didn't have the brain that mm-hmm. would say, oh, math would help here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had the brain that said, maybe my Barbie doll can tell <laughs> me. <laughs> but ha- but you must have you must have those those gears running yeah, in your I've head. Always, I've always been good in math, but I, I avoided science in college as much as I could. Uh, and I, you know, I haven't really paid attention to it as an adult until I began writing about it. And what happened is in the mid-90s, I guess, an editor kept approaching me with ideas for for books that I could do. And one of them was uh, ghostwriting George Pataki's memoir. And I, I, I just kind of held the phone out at <laughs> arm's length. <laughs> and, uh, and then she called a few weeks later and said, what about a book about the telescope? And I, I I think I held the phone out at a similar arm's length. Right. And uh, I said, that sounds like death to me, to research a piece of technology, spend eight years and 500 footnotes. And and she said, oh, think of it as an essay. And I thought, okay, I've written essays. Uh, And she said, take a month and just play with it. So I took a month and I played with it. And... Uh, and I thought, oh, I don't have to write about the technology. I can write about the history and philosophy of science. And, and it was basically like going back to college, uh-huh. but without the loans. <laughs> they gave you the loans. That's right. <laughs> right, right. That's so fascinating. And it did open up yeah. a whole niche yeah. in, if, yeah. for your career. Right. 
right. for at least for now. Well, for the past, yeah, for the past 25 years. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a background in journalism and fiction. Right. Uh, undergraduate degree in journalism, master's in f- fiction. Uh, so I try to combine those in, when I'm writing. I write in a narrative style. But totally. I, but I, I adhere to the facts. The journal, you know, the journalist side is the facts and the narr- the fiction side is the construction of a narrative. Well, I have to say there is something so, um, if it's possible to say, warm and cozy about your storytelling. Thank you. Because I'm reading this book and feeling very emboldened that I'm reading about science (laughs) and I'm not feeling scared. Mm -hmm. And I feel that you're right there with me because you're saying, I know this sounds nuts. Mm -hmm. We don't know what it is. Scientists have been studying this forever. They don't know what it is, but we know that it exists, which is kind of a head scratcher. It is. I'm I'm glad to hear you say that you feel that you're standing with me. This is what I always tell writing students. Uh, I, I say try try to get the try to get that the feeling that as you're writing that the reader you want like the reader standing shoulder to shoulder with you and you're and you're both on an adventure together and let it let the material surprise you and then the reader will be surprised. Well, just the fact that I wanted to read this book in a way, surprise me, Yeah, you know, and then that I could. Yeah. Let's talk about the overlap between science and philosophy, because I never saw that as clearly as I did while reading your book. Oh, good. I would have seen them in separate spheres, too. But when you're talking about an effect or a mm-hmm. property mm-hmm. or something that causes us to try to figure out our place in the world, which is really what you're doing in The Trouble with Gravity, you do have to go to the great early philosophers to find your way or to light your way. Well, it might help to think of it this way, that philosophy in the ancient times, eventually at the scientific revolution, when people began to investigate and use the empirical method, they called themselves the new philosophers. They just saw themselves as an extension of Aristotle and Plato and so on, that they were just keeping the tradition alive. Uh, and then new philosophers eventually just became philosopher scientists and then finally became scientists but they're but they're they come out of the same root it's so it's so amazing because as we think of those pursuits uh, now yeah, in right. university they have nothing to do with one right. another in a right. way right uh, yeah I mean that's you know that's one of those surprises that I was talking about that I come across and I go oh and and then it changes the way I see the world and how I think about the world, and then I want readers to feel that way, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, so that anyone who's interested in philosophy really could find many things to interest them in the pursuit of science. Oh, yeah. No math. Yeah. No math. Math is, you know, yeah, for me, yeah. it's yeah. just terrifying. Yeah. Fifth grade, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, that being the case, why are we so scared of science in this country? Well... I guess politically now it's, well, I was going to say it's inconvenient, but I realized that I was borrowing Al Gore's title. <laughs> well, <laughs> An yeah. In- inconvenient truth. Right. But it is inconvenient. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what the animus is. It feels very medieval to me that people are, uh, rather than confronting the problem, saying, you know, the problem doesn't exist, or I don't believe in that, or there are two sides to that story, uh, like evolution. You go, well, 
you know, there's there are two sides. There's evolution, and then there's the wrong side. You know? <laughs> the thing that's so weird to me about this is science seemed to me, and I guess a math, the one thing that was based on empiricism. Right. So everything else you can debate because you can have an opinion about. But if there's something that is known, that is recorded, that has been proven over and over again to be true, how can you argue with it? And yet, the the when you just use the word science, there are people, politicians, school boards that get very nervous. Yeah. I, I saw a quote in a New York Times Magazine article, or maybe it was GQ. Anyway, it was in the, um, the first... Uh, administration for George W. Bush. Uh, and there was a quote from somebody in the White House or close to the White House who said, no, the facts are going to be what we say they are. We will create the reality. And that really chilled me at the time. But And I and look how it's yeah, gotten look, since yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I don't understand. To me, there's comfort in knowing something is an absolute truth. Mm-hmm. Science, this angle... We'll meet this angle at this, at this value. Right. The value can't change because. Right. The laws of. Right. <laughs> science don't change. Well, the, the those laws aren't going to change, but unfortunately, I think that science, in a way, has. I can't say it's backed itself into a corner, but people still talk about, you know, you can't prove evolution. You can't prove this. And that's actually true. But people are holding science when they say, when they use the proof standard, they're holding it to a standard that it never has claimed. Right. That, you know, the 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 idea in science is that you keep coming up with uh, with examples or, or with um, validations through experimentation and so on and so forth uh, until... Um, and the more you do that, the better it seems, the more reliable it seems, but there's also something called falsifiability. So you're not trying to prove it, you're trying to falsify it, meaning that you can actually show a counterexample and it gets wrong. Right. And my last book that I did on my own, uh, The 4% Universe, dealt with dark matter and dark energy. And dark energy is one of the great instances in the history of science where these two teams were rivals, uh, they were trying to find out how much the expansion of the universe is slowing down. And what they both found out independently is the expansion of the universe is speeding up, which is counterintuitive and it also involves gravity because it's like on the largest scale, gravity is being counteracted somehow. Huh. Uh, so I love that idea of going and looking for an answer and getting an answer, but it's not the one that you expected. And that's the way science should work. And, and then, then, and then right. you accept it. Yeah. A- and when your rival finds the exact yeah. same thing, that kind of suggests that that's the empirical yeah. Yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find, for example, all the climate change, not to, mm-hmm. to veer entirely into the subject, but people say, well, our scientists say this, your scientists say that. Obviously, they're not studying the same facts. They're not doing the same experiments. Or if they all, I mean, you can't, you can't look for something, do an objective search for it, do experiments, and find two different answers. Can you? I don't know that much about uh, climate 
science, my impression from what I've read is that you're saying that some scientists get this result, some scientists get that. I mean, or, it's a very, very, very small percentage, and I don't know how reliable their data is or what they're doing, or are they just expounding ideas? I, I really yeah. don't know. But it's, a, it's you know, it's like, what, half of 1%. You know, and they say teach the debate, and you go like, "Well, the debate's kind of over." But yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I find the idea of absolute truth to be refreshing <laughs> because there are no choices to be made. I find making decisions very hard. But if you know that this is it, that's well, one less decision off my plate. I guess. Well, you you used the term Catholic earlier, and you said small C. I was raised. Large C Catholic, right, right, and uh, and and so I was told that there was a way that there was good and bad, and there was right and wrong, and and I spent you know my youth and I think early adulthood trying to figure out well, what's the right way to do this. So 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 you find satisfaction in certainty, and I um, flee from it. So <laughs> well, but interestingly, I I don't dwell in the world of certainty, <laughs> and if I could, I. I mean, I don't even know if I would, but right. you know, I find the the creative work to be very challenging. Oh, yeah. and there's so many ways you can go. And should this character go this way, or mm-hmm. should this chapter move in that direction? Mm-hmm. And and sometimes I wish someone would just give me the answer. Right. Yeah. But but alas, good good luck. Yeah. Good luck <laughs> with that. Um, but but the trick, if I may. Yeah. But the trick in art is to make the result look easy and inevitable for the reader. Right. That there was no other way to tell the story, even though there were, you know, 5,000 and you explored them all at one at three in the morning. Right. Know? Right. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's true. And I guess that's why some people don't understand that writing, even if you're home all day, you're actually working. Oh, yeah. Even if you're not putting words on a page, you're still working on it. I had a novelist, a friend who's a novelist, has been publishing since the 60s, call me a few years ago, and and she said, I just had to spend the day doing research, which I never have had to do before, and I feel like I haven't worked because I got nothing down on the paper. I said, no, that was a full day's work. Yes. It's quite an honest day's work, too. (laughs) I mean, I think a day of research can be just as, or if not more, satisfying. Oh, yeah. Because at least you know where you're going right, next. Right, right. And you know that there are some answers and some details that will make you seem very knowing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then you check them and check them and check them just to be, so that nobody can come up and you say, see, you got this wrong. You right, know? You go, right. That's, that's what I live in fear of. You know, I... Well, that and I, death, but... Okay. Well, okay. Well, death and bad facts. <laughs> bad fact checking. I am so... Uh, completely um, driven by the fear of, gosh, if I got this wrong, mm-hmm. I'm going to humiliate myself. Mm-hmm. It will it will undo every good thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. And I don't, and I think most writers are, and mm-hmm. I'm always so surprised when I read that somebody, uh, Naomi Wolf was the mm-hmm. most recent mm-hmm. one, who wrote a book with some basic fact upon which her whole thesis lay. Mm-hmm in her book and her publisher was yanking it and mm-hmm. she was trying to go on her previously scheduled book tour and and yeah. defend herself how that is a nightmare that oh that's yeah 
that that's that's your worst nightmare. The worst nightmare. Yeah, and, and, and death. Yes, and <laughs> if you well, it's kind of it's <laughs> <they're> interchangeable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like uh, yeah. I mean, when, during that radio interview, if you've listened to the clip where she's confronted with this, with oh, this, I haven't. Oh, yeah. you haven't. No. Oh, there's there's a several second silence, and it's just it's the silence of a. I mean, I it's hope, a death rattle. I hope that this isn't the case for her, but right. but, it, but it's but you can see her career passing in front of her eyes. You know? Wow, wow, poor Naomi. Yeah, but I mean, a, a writer, any of the writers that you and I know, and we we go back some mm-hmm. time, and we know quite a few in common. I mean, we're so scrupulous yeah. about doing the research and backing it up and fact checking and and. That's one of the reasons I have trouble with alternative facts, because yeah. I know that those of us who do research and write about it are not inclined to be sloppy about it. No, it 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 still blows my mind when I see politicians saying things that are wrong and then they're called on it and they just kind of go, oh, all right. All right. You know, it's like, I, where is uh, the shame? But these are not people who are familiar with shame. Now, I wrote a little tiny essaylet in True Prep <laughs> about shame. Mm. We need shame. We need to bring it back. Yeah. Shame <laughs> is It's never gone very far for me. So, no, so me if you want if you want you have some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here's a faucet of fame of shame. Sorry. <laughs> a faucet of shame. I mean, the fact is shame is almost a physiological way to correct yourself mm-hmm. it's a it's a body thing yeah in a way yeah, it's a it's way a sweat that. it's the it's the nervousness mm-hmm. it's the palpitation mm-hmm. it, yeah i mean it does keep you honest uh yeah that's it, what i like about it yeah yeah i mean it's it keeps it's you tough. ethical yes yes it's tough but well, you know but it's it's the alternative there for is being wrong. Right, but the, but it, but it's there for a reason, I yeah. think, to help people behave well with one another. I've never thought of it that way. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, it's you know, that's not in the book that but it's just I I I think a lot about it. Yeah. I think about how how I have been so embarrassed my whole life over little r- random incidents that would be nothing to people today. Right. A Kardashian wouldn't even notice it. Right. And yet it would have me hovering in a closet hoping nobody would ever see me again. My wife and I once, we had a, an issue of, oh, the Oprah magazine mm-hmm. around our house. And there was uh, something on the cover that said, the one word that will change your life. And we mocked the idea. And then we went to the article and the word was sorry. So. No. Oh. So. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I... And and it's it, you know to get over the shame you know to get to get you past those moments where you want to crawl in a closet. Oh no, Oprah, say it ain't so. Really? So? Yeah. You think so is helpful? If you're if you're consumed with shame and you don't want to sit in the closet, I mean, you you go okay. I did this. I had a faux pas. You're gonna you know? have to do the sorry before you do the so. Well, it might not be that you've 
owe somebody an apology. It's just that you feel like, oh, my God, I said that during the dinner party. Right. And people are going to think about this. And, and, of course, nobody noticed it or anything. And you, but you're oh, going to sit I there. But, but you are going to sit there and live with that. I mean, I And had, relive it. Yes. And I've had people I know who have, who have died. And I thought, oh, not thank God that they died, but, but thank God that person will never have to think about this shameful moment in my life. Oh, how that, funny. Where I said something stupid at the dinner party. You know? Wait a second. <laughs> so you're saying that you, you agree with Oprah, that so yeah. is a good word. Yeah, I mean, so, you, so you can as use in, it, I yeah. oh, So as in maybe so what? Yeah, yeah. Like, like okay, I, you know, I, I overdrew at the bank. Right. You know, now I have to pay... A, a fee. A $10 fee or right. something. And you feel bad about it. Yeah. And carry that. Instead, you just go, so? Oh, maybe that'll join one of my five things next week. So? <laughs> well, who cares? Well, <laughs> you care, but you go, but I'm not going to live with this shame forever. Right. That right. I, I feel the shame, but I don't have to, I don't have to drown in it. So good, good on Oprah, but I will say something. <laughs> I don't think enough people are embarrassed in the first place. That's, well, that's what I'm, true. that's where I'm headed. That's I'm true. thinking you should, you should ask yourself why, yes. why people don't want to. Uh, invite you to their dinner parties anymore because yeah. you're so aggressive or you're you're competitive or you're you know yeah annoying yeah well <laughs> <laughs> I'm just speaking for myself I'm not referring to you I'm no. saying one yes but that's interesting so 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 yeah so so all right yeah. all right or right. my daughter always does an impression of. Uh, Joy Behar. So what? Who cares? Well. <laughs> you know what? It it sometimes does answer a lot of what's ailing yeah. us. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've used it. My wife uses it. And it just, it feels a little more grown up, you know, as an adult. You don't want to sit there and think about these, you know, minor things that nobody else is thinking about, but that loom large in your life. I think I don't feel like I've grown up yet. That mm. is a real problem I have. It may be <laughs> something generational or it may just be a personal uh, problem. But I think it does sound grown up and maybe one day. <laughs> we should say, I should say, that the wife of whom you mention, the wife you mention, there's no of whom, the wife you mention is Meg Walitzer. Right. A mutual friend of ours. Yes. Yes. Yes, and a, a lovely we guest. We met through her. And we met through her. We did indeed, long time ago. Sometimes I will say, when I see you guys at a party, I am so, there's something about seeing you at one of these literary parties that makes me feel good. I don't know if I've <laughs> ever communicated that to you. Maybe it's why I walk shoulder to shoulder with you when I read you, uh. but you reassure me because sometimes the group is just so... Um, um, I don't know. There's something very New York literary about them mm. and us, but yet I feel like, oh, Richard's here. He's he's oh. kind of normal. I feel the same way about you, actually. Really? See, yes, yes. When I see you at a at a at an event, I head toward you because I know that you and I will uh, be ironic. <laughs> I, I never even knew we had this. Going on. Well, that's that's why that's why you should 
invite me on your podcast more. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we can get to know one another. That we, is so We should cool. just have a podcast ourselves. Okay. Get, getting to know get you. It. <laughs> <laughs> Starring Richard and Lisa. <laughs> so? <laughs> well, that is so cool. I'm the very... The least listened to podcast in history. <laughs> well, after... Yeah, it would be the least listened to, but it would be the one that people would cite as an example of oh, the least listened yes. to and would get it, therefore... And then, and then it would get an audience, yes. Right. And then, it, yeah. An ironic popularity. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about irony? Do you think that irony, which we, you and I both depend on, do you think it's in a way a property, not just an effect? I mean, irony is really okay. I was I, just trying to. You, I was you're just trying to get back to gravity. Here? I was just <laughs> trying to wrap this up yeah. with a kind of nod yeah. to gravity. Yeah. Iron. Gravity. They both sound like heavy metal. They both they they both sort of take you down somewhere. I'm just I'm just you're, you're trying. I know I know we're all trying. Me. Yeah, and it didn't quite land. But so so see yeah. See Who cares? So Richard. So you did a really you put together a really great list of five things. Ah. And I want to honor that list right now and uh, love you to take us through your thought processes as you came up with your list of five. Sure. Okay, number one. Chinatown. I'm assuming the movie, not the the neighborhood. Right. Well, nothing against the neighborhood. Nothing against, yeah. Yes, the movie, the 1974 movie directed by uh, Roman Polanski, written by Robert Towne, starring Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway. I own very, very few movies on my laptop or whatever, which is such a weird idea. Anyway, uh, but that's one that I do, and I go back to it again and again, and I just watch scenes, and I just... I I think of it as, you know, we talk about the great American novel, and it feels to me like it's the great American novel, except it's not a novel, but it has all of the... uh, all of the big themes of America westward expansion, exploiting the land, uh, the self-destruction of greed, and so on. The great American family or dynasty mm-hmm. brought down. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. 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 Crime and punishment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. And it's spectacularly well written and oh. it's used as a I know it's used by a lot of film writing teachers as the example of a perfect screenplay. Yeah. The original screenplay by Robert Town ended uh with a different scene and Roman Polanski insisted on changing it to the ending that we now know and I won't I won't oh. say what it is. Um but when I I saw it the weekend that it opened and I was 16 or 15 and uh, and I was totally blown away and the and partly it was an R but you're tall I guess yeah. you got in because you were tall yeah right. uh, and uh, I, I was totally blown away by the end because I felt that all of the themes of the movie came together there again I don't want to spoil it for anybody but there is a major event at the end and and it's set in Chinatown, and then the crowd in Los com- Angeles. In Los Angeles, and then the crowd comes in off the sidewalk and starts to move towards the tragic event. And the police back them up, and there's this incomprehension on the face of these Chinese people. 
and then the police come in and push them back and push them back and uh, and then the immortal last line come on Jake it's, or forget it Jake it's Chinatown it's Chinatown and you go oh we are Chinatown we are all at the mercy of the powers that be and we don't understand the machinations that are taking place all around us and the tragedies that happen and we don't even we can't even see them you know, uh, I bet there are people listening to this podcast or who will be listening to this podcast who never saw Chinatown. And it is a profound movie. And as you say, it really is the great American novel. It has echoes of Steinbeck. Uh, it has yeah. echoes of Dreiser. People, you if you don't know who those writers yeah. were... Google them yeah. and, um, and and listen to Richards and my show, Getting yeah. to Know You. And Gatsby. And Gatsby. It does. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to watch it again. Good. Thanks to you. Good. Um, and when you it, do, when yeah. you do, somebody pointed this out to me, and I'd never noticed it, but think about glasses and eyesight and seeing. And you'll see that throughout the movie, there are people using binoculars, they're using cameras. They're, um, Faye Dunaway's characters, uh, he says, what's that in your eye? And she says, oh, that's a flaw in my eye. It's like it's throughout oh, the movie. Wow. And a friend pointed out to me, there's a scene toward the beginning where Jack Nicholson has to go to uh, a city council meeting or something. And he's very bored. Um, and then uh, the person he's been waiting to see speak gets up and a friend of mine pointed out that the glasses that the person is wearing, he's the only person in the movie who can see everything, who who understands everything that's uh-huh. happening, and he's a good guy. Yeah. Um, he's wearing the glasses from the cover of of Gatsby. <gasps> oh, cool. Yeah. Wow. And also what's cool or weird or ironic about the great American novel, Chinatown the movie, is that it was directed by... Polanski, yeah. who was not an American. And sometimes non-Americans make the most beautiful American films. So many Australians have, mm-hmm. yeah. for, for one thing. Yeah, well, it's the, yeah. Outs- yeah, the outsider. The outsider. Yeah. Yeah. Really great. Okay, good. Number two. A Day in Life. The Beatles Again, song. Again, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this song, among others, amongst their song catalog and others, mm-hmm. tell me how that makes you feel. Again, I I mean, I I hadn't put this together, but I guess the same as Chinatown, there's this kind of apocalyptic feeling to it. Uh, There's the mundaneness of everyday She wakes up, right? Um, Or you wake up? I um, woke up, fell out of bed. Oh, right, 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 right. right. Sorry, yeah. Uh, um, But the beginning of it is John saying, I read the news today, oh boy. Oh, right. That's that song. Yeah, and... Uh, and it's, you know, it's very mundane. And I remember as a kid looking at the album cover uh, and reading the lyrics on the back, which, by the way, is something that Paul McCartney insisted on because when he uh, was a kid in Liverpool, he would go and buy a record and he would bring it home and he would and he would feel frustrated because he couldn't read the lyrics. So he insisted that there be lyrics on the back cover of Sgt. Pepper's. Wow, that's yeah. when it's the yeah. it started? Yeah. As far as I know. Wow. He was, I mean, I'd have to fact check on that. Otherwise, I'll he, be ashamed. He, no, but he would he would deserve his knighthood, if, if only for that. <laughs> right. Uh, and, um, and in the lyrics, uh, the opening line, I read the news today, oh boy, there's no punctuation in it. And that, as whatever, a 10-year-old or something, 11-year-old, 
also blew my mind that you can that you can have that effect uh, that you can mimic the way John delivers the line. I read the news today. Oh boy! So that there isn't there isn't a comma in the right. way he sings it. Right. And then you leave the comma off the lyrics. And I just thought that was it. Showed me the power of language. It was really formative. But but this is a song that I listen to sometimes. I like to work at night, and I'll put on headphones, and and it just it never gets old. It's just extraordinary. I haven't seen the movie yesterday. Which mm. have you seen no. it? No, I've heard very mixed things, and I haven't run to see it. But the idea of the Beatles still being the greatest songwriters of the twentieth century, I I still go with that. Oh yeah, you know you see Paul. In some con- not concert venue, but some like you know, I don't know, the Olympics or something like that, in a stadium with a hundred thousand people, and all he has to do is say, "Hey, Jude," and everybody's singing. I'm like, I know. What? I, how do you, you know, to have that kind of cultural omnipresence is and relevance yeah. for for yeah. fifty years. Yeah, I and, know. Yeah, incredible. Okay, next up, number three, William Trevor, the short stories. He's, he wrote novels and novellas as well, but the short stories I love to. Sometimes I'll go to um, to a pub and get a pint mm-hmm. and read a Trevor short story, and that that came about because I have a friend who's a writer who was quoted in the New York Times as saying something like, you know, what 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 would be your 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 wish? And she said, I would want to have, I would like to go to a pub with William Trevor and he wouldn't even have to say anything just <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so I actually have gone out for um, we parallel read Trevor uh-huh. in a pub with a pint and uh, it's like a book club it is and and we'll just stop and we'll go oh look at what he's doing in this paragraph and it's very exciting I mean I love I love uh, you know I've read all I've read everything of his uh, and he he's he published somewhere around 110, 120 short stories in his lifetime, and I read them all. And then I went back and I started reading them. It was like I have, I don't remember this story at all. And so this friend and I we've spent a lot of time discussing because she she said that she had the same response. Uh, why we don't even though major events are happening, the people are dying, and but we don't remember the story, and we don't. And, and we don't know why, but as soon as we start reading the story, we're just drawn in again. Wow. As if for the first yeah, time. Yeah, as if for the first time. Can I ask you something? Do you read books? It sounds like you read actual physical books. Oh, yeah. Uh, Meg uses Kindles, doesn't she? She does, yeah. I just can't. I can't imagine not turning a page, physically turning a page and yeah. dog-earing a page. And and feeling... I I, I like the geography of it of having i mean here in the studio i'm going to show you something that i printed out and you oh, see, and right. i print i print things out uh my my work when i'm working on something i print it out uh two two pages on one page uh-huh. because it feels to me like i can navigate the area i can see the relationship between paragraphs on different pages so yeah now i i have that very um I feel that strongly. Plus, I know that the thing I want to look at again, the paragraph or the passage, was on the upper right-hand corner Mm -hmm. of the page. So it helps me find... Anyway, I just just love a book. I was was talking about uh, physical newspapers with an editor 
yesterday, who is in her low 30s, I think. And she and I were talking about the importance uh, to us of the physical newspaper to see where things are laid out. Like, I, I want to know, about a few months ago when Doris Day died, we happened to be meeting with our accountant that day. And and we, the accountant and I, were politely disagreeing about where the Times would place Doris Day's obituary. Uh-huh. And I said, A1 below the fold. And right. He, and he said... A A one, but the little mention at the bottom of the page. And I said, "No, it'll be it'll be a, it'll the obituary will open on A one." And and I was right. And mm-hmm. he was very very graciously, you know, wrote me the next day and acknowledged that facts. Yeah, <laughs> you can't argue with them. <laughs> That's right. You have to yield to them. But you know what, Doris Day was a seminal figure in this country. I mentioned her after she died. We played a song. I think we played a song. Uh, yeah, we did. Dream a Little Dream of mm-hmm. Me when she died. Mm-hmm. That was not Cass Elliot's first. It was not the <laughs> one who made that song great. It yep. was Doris Day or wow. popularized it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Doris Day. She just... But, you know, you say that she was this cultural figure, and she was, but the argument that my accountant was making was that she it was is too long ago yes and yeah he, and he said I, he said i think the a1 placement says less about her cultural relevance today than an editor at the times's <laughs> affection oh. for oh. the past oh. um well, and you know the, when philip seymour hoffman died that was was that a that, that was, was a1 that right? was that was a1 and it started above the fold <sighs> Pete Seeger's obituary on the same day was below the fold wow. on A1. And I thought, I guess it's just a matter of who's culturally relevant now. I mean, uh, you know, as much as I liked Philip Seymour Hoffman's work, I, did, yeah. I don't think of him as an above-the-fold A1 death. Wow. Well, and this goes to the geography of the printed word. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So interesting. And yeah. who's in charge that day of right. laying out the paper? Right. Right. Have you ever been to a page one meeting at the time? I have Times? not. I would love to. Yeah, you should. I got to do it once, and yeah. you should. You should try to do it. I I think civilians can request it. And oh really? I, I mean, huh. if you know someone at the Times, I'm sure you do. And yeah. if you don't, I'll introduce you. No, I. It's, it's. I know someone who I just found out recently has to go to the A one meeting every day, and I was like, wow, that's that's great. Oh man, you learn so much. Yeah. yeah. You not only learn about the news that's breaking around us, but you learn about how it's prioritized. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, number four. Smell of corn on the cob silk. The highlight of summer for me is picking up an ear of corn in the store and cracking it at the silk area and putting it up to my nose. It smells of the soil and I don't know what else, but it's just, it's, um, when I was putting this list together, it's corn season now, and I, and... It and, so is. Yes, and I, uh, I don't know that it would have made the list at a different time of year, but it's been very much on my mind, sadly. But Corn was on my list last summer. Oh, okay. I love fresh corn on the cob. It is one of those summer icons. And, Just and before I left the house today, my wife said, I'm going to get corn today. Do you want one or two ears? I said, two. Yeah, of course. 
What a question. Um, yes, we're having corn tonight, too. Are we eating together? No, no. but we could. <laughs> no, we no. We have. Um, oh, you have. We real have a cousin. We have a cousin coming over to play Scrabble. So. Oh wow! <laughs> now we're having corn on the cob tonight to watch while we watch the debate. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought you were, I thought you were going to say the Bachelorette. <laughs> oh no! Well, I would, but uh, I'm not. But not this season. <laughs> but yeah, corn is on my menu. Yeah, good. Yeah, and it's so easy to cook. I'll say. Right. Okay. Number five. Now, I'm going to reprint your entire discussion. Okay. Uh, if that's okay with you. Yeah. On the blog at lisabernbach.com so everyone can read what you were considering, what you rejected, because it's a really interesting Catholic small c mm. list of favorite things and meaningful things. But... Why don't we go right to number five, if you don't mind. Hostess Susie Q's. Okay, now, uh, wait, I want to just review. You went from the great American novel movie to a Beatles song because of language. William Trevor, the short story writer, language. The sensuous smell of corn and the, and the, the scent of soil in the summer. And Susie Q's. That, I, I, I just love this list so much. <laughs> okay. Why Susie Q's and not a yodel? You know, I grew up having Susie Q's, uh, but it's not just, it's not just you know, a Madeleine. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, they really taste good. And when Hostess momentarily went out of business a few years ago, I was so sad that they weren't going to be available, even though as an adult, I very, very rarely ate them. But I thought, oh, they're gone forever. And then Hostess came back. And the Twinkie came back and the cupcakes and maybe some other stuff. Maybe Snowballs. Snowballs, yes. Yeah. They did. And Susie Q's eventually. And they weren't very good in their new incarnation. Oh, no. Yeah, they were, they were shaped a little bit differently. And then a few months later in the store, I saw uh, they said, you know, new Susie Q's or something, and uh, and they were just like the old days, except with a little more cream, which is it's only uh, better. Yeah, yeah, and 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 so now um, I've gotten to the point in life where I, where I say, should I have the Susie Q? And if I do, how will I? Do? And then I go, so, and then I, <laughs> <laughs> and then I have the Susie Q. So. Oh wow, that is perfect. I can improve upon that, Richard. I want to thank you so much thank for being you. on the show. Thank you. This is fun. Really fun. And I've gotten to know you that much better. Yes. Which was the whole point. And, and next time when we see each other at a party, we will... We will <laughs> Zoom. <laughs> Zoom. Zoom. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Richard Panic, author of The Trouble with Gravity, Solving the Mystery Beneath Our Feet was published this month by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. His website can be found at richardpanik.net. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. My blog is at lisabernbach.com, where you'll find links and photos about all the things we spoke about here today. The podcast is produced in New York City by TheFieldTV.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. My team is Espresso Arucci. 
Michael Port and Sam Haft. Until next week, stay very cool and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. <laughs>